the, the good news about his salvation. So as he lays out, here's what God's will is for you and the way that he wants you to live and the kind of person he wants you to be, one of the things that we start to feel as we really understand that is, I can't do it. Like, I fall so far short of God's standard, there, there's something that I'm missing, there's something that I need. And this is important. We're going to make this point a number of times throughout this series, but I just want to make it now. Aligning yourself with God's will is a good thing, and it is something you can grow in. But your ability to do God's will is not what, um, what allows you to receive salvation. You, you need grace. Does that make sense? You need grace. And then three, this is the, the third major goal that he has in this teaching. We see it here in the, in the verse, Matthew 7, 21. Jesus wants to reveal himself as the one who changes everything and provides the grace that we need. All right, so it's, it's here's how you live, and here you can't actually do it, but here I am to, to meet you where you are and give you the grace that you need. Uh, you look at what he says in Matthew 7, like, just think of the audacity any other human being would need to have to say what Jesus says here. Like, not everyone who calls me Lord gets into heaven, only some of you. But like, if you go, so like, if I said that, like, this would be a cult, and you should leave. But I haven't said it, so it's not a cult, you know, if you're visiting. Glad you're here. We're not a cult. And, uh, like, I, I could never say that. I, I don't have that, that boldness. But when Jesus says it, it sounds right. It, it sounds natural. Jesus is the Savior we need because we can't live up to God's standard, and he is the source that allows us to grow and change and get closer to actually living out God's will in our lives. So that's, like, the basic framework for Sermon on the Mount. You ready to start it? I got two nods, but we're going to do it anyways. Um, Jesus begins a sermon with what is called the Beatitudes. These are these are beautiful attitudes. Um, there's eight of them, and what we could do, and what some churches do, is spend eight weeks on it. Um, and honestly, we like we totally could. There's plenty in there to get into. We're not going to do that. Um, it's um, it's just different different ways that people go about teaching the Bible. Sometimes it's really good to go slowly and to sit in it and, uh, and, and spend a lot of time seeping in it. But sometimes when you do a big picture, you get a different perspective that's also helpful. And when Jesus originally gave the Sermon on the Mount, he did it all at once and spent a year in it. So like there's, there is something to it, to taking a, a little bit of a bigger piece. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go through all eight of them um, and the pattern we're going to see through all eight is uh, blessed are the blank, whatever the attitude is, uh, for they shall blank, the, whatever the re- reward they're going to receive for having that attitude. And this is another important thing uh, for the Beatitudes, but also for other parts of the Bible. When you see the word blessed, it usually carries the meaning happy. Happy are those who have this attitude. Uh, you can even like replace the word blessed with happy, and it's a, it's a pretty, you know, faithful interpretation. Um, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mountain with these eight things. He says, here's how you're going to be blessed. Here's how you're going to be happy. 
which is kind of a funny thing that um, if you're like new to Christianity or if you come from a, an expression of Christianity where there's big focus on the, the rules and on appearances, it might seem a little strange that God actually does want you to be happy. Like he actually does want you to have the most joy you can possibly have in your life and that's what living out God's will is, is one of the things that that's gonna do for you. It's gonna lead to the greatest glory for God and the greatest joy in your own life. And in these eight, a- these eight attitudes, it's so it's refreshingly different. Uh, some of these are directly opposite to the advice that you would get from the world, if, if the world or anyone that you know who doesn't know Jesus tells you, well, here's what I think you should do to be happy. It's, it's the exact opposite. And so we're gonna get into that. We're gonna see uh, what are the eight attitudes are, um, what Jesus says we get from that, and then in each of them, we're gonna see, well, how are, is this thing connected with Jesus, and how do we get it from him? How do we grow in it because of Jesus? So here we go. The first one, starting in verse one, says this. Uh, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, from the very beginning, you see where this does not totally sound like the advice that you might get from uh, just like a random person that you ask. How, like, what do you need to do to be happy? You need to be poor in spirit, right? You need to be humble. Um, G- Jesus is talking about uh, a spiritual poverty where it's the, the spiritual condition that you're in or like a, you can think of it almost as like the standing of your moral goodness. Um, and Jesus says, you need to be poor in spirit. You need to be in a place where you have much less than what you really need. You're living below the poverty line in your spiritual condition. Not the advice you expect to hear. The advice you expect to hear and that we actually get bombarded with all the time is you are amazing, you know? Uh, you're, You're amazing, don't let anyone tell you different. You are a radiant, shining star. Uh, you are incredible, you are enough, and you just need to learn to love everything that you are. And that's the way for you to be happy. People love to say that. People go to conferences where they say that. People say on, on Instagram and all the other social medias, like you hear this all the time. The problem with it is it's not true. Not that I think you guys are not great, you are, but I don't think that you're enough. You're going to be a much happier person when you accept the, the wisdom of the great philosopher and poet, Taylor Swift, who says, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. I can't get away from that line, I hear that every single day of my life. Um, but there's, there's something to that, and, and this is what Jesus is talking about. You need to recognize that there are some deep flaws and deficiencies in you, and you're not enough. You don't have more than you need. You need more than you have. And the reason for that, it, it's, it's our sin that has spiritually bankrupt us. 
He's like, if you imagine your sin, and sin is not just breaking the rules, it's the thoughts and the attitudes in your heart that are, uh, are offensive to God and in rebellion to his authority and that, that don't love him and don't want to, to worship him and don't want to, um, don't want to live uh, the way that he's created for us to live, every kind of bit of that thought of defiance in us against God's will. If each one of those was recorded and put on a scroll, and the whole scroll was laid out, like each one of those sins accrues a debt that you owe, and you just can't pay it back. You don't have enough in your account, and you never will to pay it back. And so, so how, how is it that the poor in spirit are happy? Because it's only those who realize and accept that they are poor in spirit, they need more than they have, who will ever be in a position where they're going to want to receive God's grace. If you don't think you're spiritually poor, you're going to think, well, I don't need that. I'm fine the way I am. Everyone's been telling me how amazing I am. I don't need Jesus. And here's another, like, you don't need to become poor in spirit. This is not something you need to, like, add to by any means. Like, you are poor in spirit. You're super poor in spirit. You're very, very poor. You need to realize it. You need to recognize it and let that understanding lead you to Jesus who, when he goes on the cross, pays all the debt that you owe out of the riches of his grace, the, his spiritual riches to pay your debt. You need more than you have, and Jesus has more than you need. That's the good news. When you're poor in spirit, that's when you are in a position that you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. And you can have a place where you belong to the people of God who are so loved that Jesus would lavish his grace on you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the, the first one. Next one, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Once again, a little bit not what you expect to hear, right? Like, how do you be happy? It's gotta be sad. Um, yes, there's more to it than that, but it does sound weird. Um, what I think Jesus is digging into is, uh, I just think humanity has a problem where we generally have an unhealthy, uh, we have unhealthy methods of dealing with painful things and, and suffering. We're not good at mourning. We are good at pretending. You know, we're good at pretending things are okay when they're not okay. We're good at um, pushing feelings down or ignoring them or distracting ourselves or otherwise putting distance between us and the painful thing that we don't want to think about and we don't want to experience. And this goes for like personal things that you can experience in your own life, so your own personal suffering and also the suffering that is happening in the world around you that you see but is not personally affecting you. Um, there's no such thing as a rich and fulfilling happiness that simply ignores painful things. All that happiness can ever be is shallow and weak, and at some point it's going to break. But blessed are those who mourn, happier those who mourn, the people who don't ignore 
the, the pain and the loss and allow themselves to experience grief, to grieve over their own suffering and the suffering in the world around them because just like our poverty of spirit, that mourning is the thing that can lead us to Jesus and look to him as our great comforter and as our healer. Like Jesus can comfort us in our pain because Jesus knows our pain. When he goes to the cross, he steps into our pain. He knows what it is and on the third day, he's resurrected from the grave. He turns back death, turns it into this new, glorious, immortal life and that resurrection becomes the thing that in, you know, extends that eternal life to all of us and, and becomes this great thing that uh, reconciles people to God, gives people peace with God, and leads to all his life through this, this, this painful, horrible thing that happened. That there's joy in knowing that our pain is not, uh, it, it's not forgotten and it's not meaningless. Jesus deals with it. And not only is it dealt with, but, but he redeems it. Like he, he has a plan to take all of our sorrow and all of our pain and do something with it to turn it into uh, something good. Blessed are those who mourn, not ignoring the painful things, but, but seeing how Jesus deals with those things, seeing how he comforts us about those things. Number, uh, number three, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I feel like I need a new way to say this. I'll probably change it up on the next one, but this is like the opposite to what people say. This is the opposite to the advice that people would say about how you achieve happiness in your life. Because to be meek is to be, um, is to be gentle and, and quiet and even submissive. Uh, it's very much not kind of throwing your weight around to get your way and, and do the things that you want. And, um, you know, if people are acting in a way that you don't like, you're going you're gonna to do it, you're going to try and make them change to kind of uh, treat you the way that you want to be treated. Um, because I imagine what many people would say is if that's what you're going to do, if you're just going to be meek and you're going to let people uh, treat you in ways that you don't like and and you're not going to be really, really firm about that and even fight back on that, they're just going to walk all over you and they're going to use you and you're going to be miserable. I think the problem here is this, this worldly attitude that um, in, in order for you to be happy, like it kind of depends on your own uh, your own strength and ability to make it happen where you need to... You need to have a clear idea about what it is that you want in life and, and how you want to be treated and where you want to end up, and then you need to go and make it happen. You need to have a plan. You need to uh, improve yourself, and, and you, you need to um, kind of use, use everything that you can to get to where you want to be. The problem with trying to implement that plan is, one, it's a lot harder than just saying it. Right, like there are so many things in our lives that are outside of our control. Like people are outside of our control. We can't really control how they treat us, and um, you know there could be an illness that's thrown at you. There could be you could lose your job. There could be all these things that are outside of your power that could happen to you that could ruin your plan. But then even for the people who achieve it, like how many times do we have to? listen to an interview where someone who's fabulously wealthy and incredibly famous is sitting down for an interview and they just say, I feel kind of empty. 
you know, that this is not, this is not the, the fullness of life. This is, there, there's got to be more to it than this. That's where being meek is, is such a better answer than trying to, um, to use your own strength to impose your will on life and on the people around you to make it, you know, act the way that you want it to act. Uh, being meek is not the same thing as being weak. Like, Jesus is a meek person, and, and he describes himself that way. Um, being meek, it, it means that you have your strength under control. You don't just let it blow up and, and kind of lose yourself to the, the heat of the moment so that you can be a gentle and kind and loving and forgiving person even when people are, are behaving in a way that you don't like or they're treating you in ways that you don't like. So like, like look at Will Smith at the Oscars, right? That was not very meek. Um, how much happier do you think he, like, how much better would his life be today if in that moment he could be meek instead of hearing something he didn't like and having to get up and respond to it and try to impose his will on making uh, kind of everything the way that he wanted it to be? Uh, I hope you take that lesson to heart. You don't have to do what Will Smith did ever, especially at church. Um, the, the way for you to be meek is, uh, the thing that allows you to be meek is when you trust in God's strength to accomplish his plan. Like, it's not just being, um, just being passive in life and just whatever happens, happens, and we'll just see where it goes. Uh, it's, it's you, you look at Jesus, right? You look at how did Jesus deal with the problem of sin in the world and conquer human hearts and subdue them so that they, they love God and would want to increasingly uh, live in a way that pleases him. How did he do it? Well, he didn't punch the world in the face. He went to the cross. In an act of love, he gave himself for us. And it's that that love where he just receives all the, the abuse of the world because he loves the world so much, that's the thing that like melts our hearts and changes us. It's so much better. It's so much more persuasive to people when you're able to be meek in those moments uh, instead of responding with, with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is another part of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I love the promise attached to this one, the meek shall inherit the earth, because God's plan, what he's promised to do, and what Jesus tells us he's going to do, is he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, he's going to right every wrong. There's going to be no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. Like, this is the world that we all long for, the one that we all want to be in. And the way that we get to that promised ideal world that we all want to be in is not by making the world that way by, by fighting against everything that doesn't look like it. We get it by being meek and trusting in God and trusting the plan that he has and what Jesus is doing to create this new earth and we get to inherit it. Next, 
verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Uh, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So righteousness is being right with God. It's having this close relationship with God where there's, there's nothing in your life that's, that's kind of keeping you from him or like a barrier in that relationship. Is as much as possible, it's being close to God. So to hunger and to thirst for righteousness is to have this real, genuine, sincere love for God and desire to be close to him. And that's where you're going to have so much joy in your faith when, when that's the thing that's motivating you. It's your love for God and your desire to be close to him. And if there's not much joy in your faith, if your faith feels like a chore, it feels like, I, I don't like reading the Bible, I don't like praying, I don't like going to church, I don't like serving or being humble or being generous, I don't like any of these things. If that's something that's lacking in your faith, the joy in the Lord, this is where you want to look and ask yourself the question, do, do I really love God or Am I trying to use God to get the things that I really do care about? Do I really love God? Or am I trying to use God to get the things that I actually care about? Let me go to Harry Potter for an illustration on this one. If you guys are nerds like me. Um, in the first one, the first book, it's also the first movie, if you're not much of a reader. Um, the Joe Spoiler but it's been out for a super long time, so it's fine. Um, the, the object that they're all kind of after, that is all centered around in the story, is this stone that can make you immortal and give you endless gold, which sounds pretty cool, right? And it's hidden at the end of the story in this magic mirror, and the only way that you can get it out is if you want it more than you want to use it. If, it, like, if you just want to use it more than anything, if you want to be immortal and have endless gold, you'll never get it. The only way you can get it is if, is if you want it more than you want to use it. The point is, if all you want is the benefits you can get from God, not going to hell, pretty big benefit, right? Uh, eternal life, forgiveness, riches in heaven, if those are the things that you, you really want, the things that you really care about, even like blessings in your life, I want God to, to help me make my life the, the way that I want it to be, you want health and wealth and some things that you might misunderstand about his word, um, as long as you want benefits from God more than you want God, you don't get either. But if you want to be close to the person who loves you so much, that he, he sent his son to the cross for you, that Jesus willingly goes to the cross for you because he loves you, he pays the debt for your sin, he reconciles you to him, he's just so good and you're so overwhelmed by how good he is and you love him, you get everything with him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who really, genuinely, sincerely love God and want to be close to him because they get him. They get him and they get everything that comes with him. There is joy, there's happiness in pursuing God for who he is and all those things are added with him. Next, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. For, for this one, for this attitude, I want to start with Jesus and what Jesus has done, what he's given to us, and, and how that, what that all means for us. So we are sinners, we've covered that, sinners who owe a debt for our sin to God that we could, honestly, what we are supposed to do because of this debt that we have, um, what, what we deserve in the spot that we're in, is to be judged under God's wrath for sin, and, and that's hell. But Jesus, in his mercy, has offered to pay the debt for us, and that means that when Jesus goes on the cross, he suffers God's wrath for sin on the cross. And he finishes it. He pays the debt in full. We, he, he extends that mercy to us, and that mercy changes us. You can't receive that mercy and not have it change you. It absolutely will. Jesus teaches a parable about, um, it's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And what happens is there's a master who has a servant with an astronomical debt. Uh, just in like made up numbers, but like pretty accurate to the stories. Like just say he owes a billion dollars to his master. I don't even know how he got a debt that big, but he does. And uh, so the master brings him in, and he goes, hey, just give me time, just give me time, I'll pay it back. And the master goes, you know what? Forgiven. You don't owe me anything. Uh, let's just start over and, and do better next time. Uh, and so he's, his huge debt is forgiven. That servant then goes to a fellow servant who owes him a much smaller debt, say like $1,000. And that servant says to him, uh, give me time, give me time, I promise I'll pay you back, and the servant says, I don't believe you, and throws him in jail. And the master hears about what happened, and he brings him back in, and he says, like, what's wrong with you? I, I forgave you this astronomical debt, and then someone owes you this much smaller one, and you're not able to forgive that? And so he reinstates the debt, and, and throws him in jail, and what, what Jesus is revealing through this is when you understand what Jesus has forgiven you, when you understand the enormity of the debt that he paid, you can no longer withhold forgiveness. You can't withhold mercy because the debts that are owed to you are much smaller than the one that you owed to him that he paid off for you. We receive his mercy. We become merciful. It's not that it's like we have to do it, like it's a requirement, and it's just like, you know, you just got to do it because that's the way it works now. You know, he changes you so that you become the person who, like, I can't hold on to this debt. I just can't do it because he didn't hold on to mine. That's, that's the way that he changes us. So now, not only is there joy in receiving his mercy, and there's massive joy, and receiving his mercy, and knowing that we're forgiven, and the debt is paid, like, you know, just imagine, uh, like, if, if anyone in here is, like, a banking person, like, if anyone in here is uh, with, with Somerset Savings Bank, and you are inspired by that parable, and you love the master that Jesus said is this awesome guy, and you just want to write off a debt, we can talk later about my mortgage, um, like, there's so much joy in having that massive debt paid and cleared, but then you get 
the joy also of kind of joining together with Jesus in, in forgiving other debts and seeing people set free. And let me be clear, like forgiveness is not an easy thing. And the worse that someone has sinned against you, the harder that it, the harder that is. But when you withhold forgiveness, all that's going to do for you, I mean, you're going to have a righteous anger about it. There's something that feels good about that, but there's also something that's destructive about that. And all it's going to do for you is make you grow in resentment and bitterness and keep you locked to the past so that you can't move on yourself. That's why there is more joy in forgiving. And again, like, forgiving someone does not mean that you're opening the door back to the same relationship you had with them before. Like, if they've shown that you can't trust them or you're afraid they'd hurt you again, um, you don't have to do that. Forgiveness simply means that I'm not, uh, like, I'm I'm not going to ask you to pay your debt to me. Like, you don't have to pay anything. You don't have to earn anything. You're forgiven. And, and maybe based on, you know, whatever it was or the relationship, it doesn't, you don't have to reconcile with that person. Anyways, blessed are the merciful. They receive mercy. Next, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, I'm also a little bit of like a Lord of the Rings nerd as well as a Harry Potter nerd. But, so there's, uh, there's writings that J.R. Tolkien uh, has put into his books where a couple of places, he, um, he doesn't say it in these words, but he describes evil as not being able to create anything original. All evil can do is like twist or corrupt the good things that have been made. And that, that's a pretty good way of looking at, um, you know, p- purity and impurity and what we're seeing here in, uh, in verse 8. Um, Paul says it like this in Galatians 5. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Like just a little bit of leaven will work itself out and fill the whole thing. So even if there's something that is um, mostly good or there are really good things that you're doing in it, if there is a little bit of this impurity, a little bit of this corruption or this twist, it can ruin the whole thing. So, so it, it's something, like we take something good that God's created or we, we look at his will and says, here's what's good for you to do, when you twist it and take it outside of his, uh, the, the scope of his will for it, his design for it, that's where it becomes a problem. And so, um, so you can think of it in relationships. When you do something for someone else, you're, do so, you're doing something good for them. But if you are doing it for an impure motive, that you want to put them in your debt, uh, you want to get something from them, you want to gain in some way, whatever it is, like you're using them for something, that's not pure in heart. And it's one thing if you just do it like once, but if this is your habit, if this is what most of your relationships are, uh, if that's how you think, you're always kind of calculating what can I gain? What can I get? How can I use this? You're going to become so self-absorbed and the way that you view people is going to be so twisted. They're always going to be tools for you to use. You're, you're never going to have the joy of simply helping someone who, uh, who, who you care about and then just seeing how you get to make a difference in their life. 
as the same thing, not just in relationships, but in, in other areas where if you, um, if you find or pursue uh, enjoyment, pleasure, satisfaction in the things that God identifies for us as sin. So you're finding or you're pursuing enjoyment, pleasure, satisfaction in things that God calls sin, things that God has such a problem with, Jesus had to go to the cross and die in order to forgive us of those things. That's how big of a deal they are. But you think they're funny, or you just like whatever it is, and so you're not going to let go of it. You're going to hold on to it. You're going to keep pursuing it. You're going to keep finding your uh, pleasure, satisfaction, joy in those things. You're never really going to see God. Like, you're never going to see God who is the source of all the good things that he's created in, in their pure forms, uncorrupted and untwisted. You're never going to see how those things that he's made are so much better because the things that God's given us to enjoy, we can enjoy them without any regret or guilt or shame, right? And so many of the things that God identifies as sin, like if you go and pursue those things, you might not see it like right away. You, you might not even care about it, but those things like they ripple out and create this collateral damage to hurt the people around you, to hurt yourself. And in the things that God's created for us that are good, there, there's none of that. There's no guilt, no regret, no shame. And, you know, again, the tricky thing with this is we don't have pure hearts. We are sinners. We, we have a sin nature. But what Jesus does is he renews us. He renews our hearts, changes us so that what we desire from the heart is different, and as he changes us more and more, we get to grow, to become more and more like him, we become, become more and more pure, we get more and more victory over our sin, and, and there's, there's joy in that growth. Two left, two left, next one in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Notice Jesus says peacemakers and not peacekeepers, um, Martin Luther King Jr. has a really helpful insight on this where he says uh, true peace is not the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. It's not the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. What a peacekeeper tries to do is they just try to stop the argument. They just want, uh, you know, the voices to quiet down and things to go back to the way they were and just kind of end, uh, get to the end of the argument. Um, being a peacemaker is harder because it means dealing with the underlying causes of the problem and then trying to correct them. Uh, and so, like, if you're, if you're trying to be a peacemaker in your own home, and you should, this is something you should want to do, um, if you want to be a peacemaker in your own home, that means that when, whether you're involved in an argument or you just are there for one, um, the goal is not to get to the end of the argument as quickly as possible. And, like, you can do that by, like, proving that you're right or just throwing in the towel and just being like, okay, fine, whatever you say. You don't want to do that. Being a peacemaker in your own home means that you have a commitment 
to keep lines of communication open until both of you really fully, or all of you fully understand, here's why this was such a problem. Like, here's what was, here's what, you know, this person found so offensive about this or so hurtful, and here's uh, maybe the things that you didn't see or I didn't see. You're going to get to the root cause, the bottom of the problem, and then, this is the harder part about being a peacemaker, you are going to do whatever is in your power to do to make it better. A peacemaker's solution is never, well, you're, you did, you're the bigger cause of this problem than me, so you better do something about it and, uh, and, and kick the responsibility over. Listen, even if that's true, even if you are not like the major cause of whatever it is, the peacemaker is going to still do what they can do to correct the problem. This is in your home, this is in your work, with your friends, uh, with your neighbors, with your community, whatever it is, with your church, just like with mercy, we develop the, the attitude of being a peacemaker because Jesus has made peace for us. Like the way that Jesus makes peace for us between us and God, right? He's not the cause of that problem. He doesn't have any responsibility to correct it. It's entirely ours, and yet what he does as he goes to the cross to deal with our problem for us to make peace with God. He's willing to pay the cost to fix it. When we're peacemakers and we get in and we do what we can, because you can't control anyone else. You can't just say, well, here's what you need to do. Um, you, you can only do what you yourself can do. I mean, I mean communication, yes, important, and, and is good to help people see things how they really are, there is a problem that they need uh, that they need to fix and grow in. But what you can do for them is just make it easier by by loving them more, showing them more grace, being more patient, being more kind, being more humble. When Jesus goes to the cross for us for our problem to make peace for for us with God, right? We receive that that enables us to grow in being peacemakers in the world and. Like, the, the, the real joy in being a peacemaker is that we get to be called sons of God. We get to be like Jesus, the Son of God. And uh, we get to tell people the good news of Jesus, point them to what Jesus has done so that the power of the gospel can work in their hearts and they can have peace with God. So like we get to join Jesus in the peacemaking work that he's done and just see more lives being changed. And, and there's, you know, not, not only for us, but for, for the people around us. There's, there's so much joy in that. So, so fulfilling. The last of the Beatitudes in verse 10 says this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, another one that you don't expect to hear, like, you should be happy when people are mean to you, <laughs> you know? 
when people lie about you and they say the nastiest things they can think of about you, that's when you should really be happy. Um, but Jesus is specific here. Don't miss this. You're, you're blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake and on account of his name. You, you're not blessed when you are acting like a hypocrite and you are being unloving and kind of a jerk to the people around you because they won't agree with what you're telling them about Jesus and about faith. And, and I just want to like, I always like to say this one. I don't notice it really in our church, uh, but I just keep saying it because I don't ever want to notice it. There's, there's a thing that sometimes Christians will do where they, they, um, they're kind of like in this argument or in this fight about faith and they're trying to convince people they're right trying to show people the truth that they're convinced by, but they're much more concerned about being right and proving themselves right and proving the other person wrong that the way they go about it, they end up treating people in ways Jesus explicitly forbids his followers to act. So you're not being loving, you're not being patient, you're not being kind, you're not being charitable. And if people are, like, being mean to you for acting like a jerk, like, you don't get to claim this one. Well, I'm blessed. Just doing the Lord's work. I mean, you're going to think you are anyways, but, but you shouldn't be. There, there's, there's something that you're not seeing in this. When that's not the case and you're not, you know, acting like a hypocrite and being really unloving to people, but you're actually, you know, like, you're doing all the Beatitudes. So you are poor in spirit, you're humble, uh, you, you mourn, you're meek, you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you are merciful, you're pure in heart, you're a peacemaker, you're doing all these things. And then you're, you know, you're telling people about the hope that you have in Jesus and, and uh, what he's done for you and the life that you have in his name. Uh, and then people hate you for that because people will still hate that. They'll still hate that because at the end of the day, you're still telling people, just like I did at the beginning, you're not enough. And people don't like to hear you're not enough. And, and Jesus says you have to change. And people say, how? And you say, well, here's how. And they go, I don't want to change like that. And so you, people are still hearing that they're not enough and they need to change and they, they need forgiveness and those are offensive. And so even if you're doing everything right and you're being as loving as Jesus was, you see how people treated him, there's still going to be some level of hostility or antagonism that you experience when you are being what Jesus wants you to be. You're being the kind of person he wants you to be. You're living out his will. You're doing all the right things. And then you experience persecution or people say nasty things about you. That's when you can rejoice. Because honestly, like this isn't even your home anyways. You're being rejected by a place that you don't belong to. You, you belong, you're, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus says in John 15. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. It's not like it's a fun experience to be persecuted or to have someone say nasty things about you or lie about you or whatever it is, especially when that person is in a closer relationship with you than just like a stranger. It's not like it feels, like that feels good, but it is a reminder that like, all right, this isn't the place that I belong. I belong to someplace better. I belong with God. I belong with Jesus in heaven. I'm, I'm, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I'm a child of God. Right? I have something better than what I'm being rejected from. That's where the, that's where the joy is. These beatitudes, these eight beatitudes, um, these are things that Jesus wants to see in us and things that he makes grow in us when we recognize how they're connected to him, how, you know, Jesus has given me mercy. Jesus has lavished me with his grace. Uh, Jesus has made peace for me. Like, when you recognize all the things that Jesus has done for you, that's what allows these things to bloom and grow and flourish in you. And honestly, every single one of us, like, we could all grow in all of them. But maybe today, maybe for you right now, if you could think, what are one or two of the Beatitudes that God seems to be tugging on my heart this morning? saying, here's where I want you to grow next. Here's where I want you to make some strides next. Here's where I want to see some of your habits change, some of your attitudes transform. Maybe you need to be more forgiving. Maybe you need to be more committed to making peace and not just keeping it and getting to the bottom. Uh, maybe, maybe you need to be reminded of your, your spiritual poverty. You need to be humble. Maybe you need to mourn. You need to stop pushing away the pain, pretending it's not there, but actually look at it, experience it, and ask God to comfort you in it. What are the things, one or two things, that God's really tugging on your heart this morning? Here's the next place that I want you to grow. How are you going to grow in it? You look at Jesus. You look at Jesus. You look at what you've received from him. And then if you're here this morning and and you're not a a Christian, you haven't even made a decision to, to follow Jesus or to trust him, maybe, maybe what you want to consider this morning, the question you want to ask is, is, what do I think of Jesus? What do I see in Jesus? Do, do you see that he loves you? Do you see that he wants you to have a life filled with joy without regret? Do you see what he's done for you on the cross, the debt that he's paid? And maybe, maybe today you would consider making a decision to put your faith in him, to follow him and allow him to give you all the joy that you've ever wanted and to grow in that. Let me pray for you.